Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke. And today we're here with Lang Martin. Lang Martin is a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. His songs have been recorded by music legends Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, the Pointer Sisters, Ray Stevens, Trisha Yearwood, and Reba McIntyre. He has written 15 top 40 country hits, including two number one hits. Lang also had several crossover hits with the Pointer Sisters' Should I Do It? and Elvis Presley's last number one hit song, Way Down, which was number one on the charts the day Elvis passed away. He was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Country Song for co-writing The Greatest Man I Never Knew. His memoir, Permission to Fly, is available for download on Amazon. So why don't we start at the beginning with Rub It In? Sure. Which, first, tell me about the memoir. Yeah, my memoir is called Permission to Fly. That title came because Permission to Fly is what my mother gave me early on. She set me and my rampant curiosity loose to explore, make mistakes. And when I did make mistakes, she did not rescue me. (laughs) Instead, she convinced me that I could rescue myself. I fell for that. I tried everything that interested me. And this assurance that I could rescue myself was the key to figuring out just who the hell I was, because I really did. I tried a lot of things. I mean, I hitchhiked completely around the United States, 7,500 miles east coast, west coast, north, south. I worked on ranch. I picked up by every single kind of person you could conceivably imagine, gypsies, drunk people. But I also had jobs starting when I was very young, you know, like eight years old. I, I applied for jobs and uh, they wouldn't take me because they, they would get arrested, they said. But I started selling things door to door and I, I wanted my own money. I wanted to buy baseball cards and streamers for my bike and eclairs, which I happen to love. And I, I hated to ask for money, so it was much more pleasant to have my own. So these products which were available on the back of comics the first one was uh, a salve you know like for you know rashes and stuff and I, th- I thought well you know who the hell is gonna buy this stuff but it turned out everybody wanted this stuff or something it's called cloverine salve so i sold them door to door the deal was that you'd sell i think 12 and then you'd send a portion of the money back to them and they'd send you another 12 if you wanted them but i also sold greeting cards and and then later on, I sold bedroom slippers door to door, mowed every yard, vacuumed every swimming pool, you know, washed every car, drove people to the airport or, you know, whatever they were doing. Benny Goodman's yard. Yeah, Benny yeah. Goodman. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because yes, my, my mom moved to a rural part of Connecticut during the war when my dad was gone because the rents were cheap. And she was a writer, so she didn't have to be in an office every day, but she did have to have easy access to New York City. So this was about an hour from New York. And initially the neighborhood was, you know, plumbers and carpenters and kind of normal people like us. But after the war, when America began getting richer and more prosperous, 
wealthy people from New York City began to buy summer houses, weekend houses all around us. And these new people wanted somebody else to mow their lawn, wash their cars, etc. So I started knocking on doors. And one of the doors I knocked on was that of Benny Goodman, who, you know, at the time is the most famous clarinetist in the world. And what I learned from him, hard to put a value on, but the very first morning I went to work there, I was kneeling in a bed of roses, weeding, and over the top of the apple trees came the sound of a clarinet playing musical scales, just da 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 over and over and over. And every day I went to work there, that was what I heard. I filed away the fact that the most famous clarinetist in the world practiced every day. So there were an enormous number of lessons over the years from him and including the way he treated me when I made mistakes and so on. And I tried to be half that wise, raising our boys. We had three boys. So you were very industrious and entrepreneurial uh, from the age of eight, frankly, and, you know, 12 and 14 working, you know, mowing lawns in, in the neighborhood, selling stuff door to door. And you got in the fish taco business with cheeky fish tacos. <laughs> and the, oh, my gosh. And the door burns down oh, yeah. and, you're, and you're bankrupt. Yeah. And you decide to become a songwriter. Well, I, I had wanted to become a songwriter. When I was going to college, I think I was 20 or 21, I can't remember which, but I was painting a house one summer and all my friends were interning for big companies, which they were very excited about. You know, Merrill Lynch, Burlington Mills was one. and American Can. <laughs> American can. Yeah, they, they were working for these giant companies and they couldn't wait to go to work there. And I thought those companies would hate me and I wouldn't like working there. So what am I going to do? Because the track seemed fairly beaten to these companies and I wasn't living near anybody else who really did anything differently. Of course, I saw Benny Goodman, but I never in my whole time working for him, it never, ever crossed my mind that I would ever earn nickel one in the music business, not one second. But this summer, I had my little radio and it played this beautiful song called Abilene. I don't know if you know it, but Abilene, Abilene, prettiest town I've ever seen. I thought, that is so wonderful. I wonder if I could write a song because I was addicted to songs since I was little. I mean, I loved, you know, Nat King Cole and Tony Bennett and all these people. And then it segued into rock and roll. And, you know, suddenly Jerry Lee Lewis and, you know, the, the platters, do, 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 songs like that, you know, and Elvis. And I thought, God, it's the greatest thing going. But honestly, the idea of ever writing a song never crossed my mind until I was 20 or 21, however old. I didn't have an instrument or anything. But this summer I just said, you know, I'm going to write a song. And I wrote one. And because I was near New York, I turned over my Elvis Presley records and it led me to a company called Hill and Range, which happened to be based in New York. And I, I just I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go there, but I got to have something to take them to show them this song. So there was a bar on Broadway called the Turf Bar. It was inhabited by music people, songwriters, record producers, singers, blah, blah. It was also a 10-minute ride from my college. So I went down there one day and didn't have the guts to go in the Turf Bar to inquire what the hell I do with my song. 
But at the third day, I went in, and there were these guys in there. It was about three in the afternoon. There were only two people in there. There were these real handsome, very cool-looking black guys, and they saw me coming a mile away because I was this, you know, white kid with corduroys and button-down shirt and all that. God Almighty, you know. And so I asked them if they knew where I could make a demo because I didn't play an instrument and need to hire people. And the the guy says, uh, "Does that song have music?" And I said, "Yeah." And he's, "How it got music? You don't play nothing." I said, "Well, I just sing it." guy says, in the air? And I said, yeah. And he thought that was hysterical, but he told me where to go to make make my demo. So for about 80 bucks, I made a recording of this and they gave me a disc with my name on it, title of the song. Swagger. Swagger, yep. And I took it to Hill and Range, who is close to Elvis as I could get because they were his publisher on so many songs. And I just started there. The guy didn't love the song or anything, but it, it was my introduction. The guy was so cool. He had on a white shirt and blue jeans with his sleeves rolled up. And I thought, I love this guy. This is the business for me. You know, this is so much cooler than any of the, the guys at the time that I saw riding the train into New York in their suits and stuff. And I thought, that's great for them, but it's not great for me. And this guy is up my alley and, and I loved him. And, and that was Milton? No, <laughs> you get a good memory. Uh, this guy's name was Erwin Schuster. He literally became the most famous pop music publisher in America. He was on his way to becoming that, but he didn't know it, and I didn't know it, of course. But he became a great friend, and eventually, many years later, he did become my publisher. So anyway, I loved everything about the actual marketing of the song. I loved taking my songs to people. I didn't get depressed when they turned it off. I just thought, well, you know, it's my job to bring them songs they liked. It's not their job to like my song. So I just got into that mode and I, I loved it. During the time that I had Cheekies, I was flying to Nashville. I, I flew to Nashville just this one day to find Ray Stevens, who I thought was the most eclectic music guy I could think of at the time. He, he loved, you know, rock music, gospel music, country music. There was nothing that was out of his range of ears, you know, if I could play him anything, if he didn't like it, I thought, well, this guy's as eclectic as I get. So if I could ever be his gopher or have him be my teacher, that would just be the greatest thing going. So flew to Nashville, took a taxi to his office, had my little guitar, which my wife gave me when we got married, and just went in and asked if I could play a few songs. And by some miracle, he said, yeah, you can play him. So I played a few songs and he said, if you'll write me one song that I like as much as this song you just played me, I'll record you. And I was not dying to be a recording artist at all because I'm not a performer. I'm, you know, I don't like to go out and sing. But I would do anything not to be in my fish and chips place, in my fish tacos place. So I went home and I just kept sending him songs. And after about nine months of sending him songs constantly and, and having him say, oh, that's almost, or that's a good B-side, or I like it, but you kind of lost me there in the third line, or whatever the things he would say. One day, we were in our backyard, and people were putting suntan lotion on each other, and somebody said, rub it in, and I had my guitar there, and I just said, rub it in, rub it in. My wife popped her head up, and she said, has that already been a hit? And I said, I don't think so. And she said, well, that sounds like a hit to me. 
went put her head back down and I wrote this song, Rub It In. And it just sounded great. Like from the minute, you know, that day it was finished. And I sent it to Ray and he called up at the fish place and said, this is a smash. Come down here and we'll record it. And we did. And that record did actually become a hit in a few big cities like Houston. But by the time it had proven itself and was ready to spread elsewhere, it was no longer summer. <laughs> People in November didn't really want to be playing a, a beach song. So I started using my version as a demo. And I played it for the producer of a guy named Billy Crash Craddock, who was having big hits at the time. And the producer loved it. And it became a, a number one country record and a top 20 pop record. And and then later, this commercial for Glade plugins, plug it in, plug it in. So that song has been kind of a little miracle in our family. But it all started in our backyard in Connecticut. So it's, you just never know where things are going to start or happen. So first recorded in 1971 by you. Yes. In Ray Stevens' office, I guess. It, it was at a studio, very famous studio at the time called Clement Studios, owned by Jack Clement, who a very famous guy. He actually, his career went way back, but among those many things that he did was he engineered a whole lot of shaking for Jerry Lee Lewis. That's pretty incredible. And did you meet and work with Cowboy Jack? I I knew him, but no. He owned the studio, but he didn't run it or anything. And Ray Stevens also in the Songwriter Hall of Fame with you. Yeah. Well, me with him, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean. And everybody's he, equal, who's it? Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, you think of these people like Chuck Berry or Hank Williams, you think, oh my God, you know, not even close. But the, the idea that, you know, could be even in the same breath as one of those people is sort of impossible. But not afraid of the novelty song, Ray. You know, oh, God. Uh, I the mean, Streak and, sure. and Ahab the Arab. And, oh, yeah. And not just about novelty. No, because, I mean, everything is beautiful. That's as good as it gets. I mean, that's a fabulous, you know, that was the thing that made me go to him. Going to him was not my idea. One day I left my fish taco place and went into New York because I was just so desperate to try to get somewhere. And I went to a, a guy who had been a longtime friend and I told him that I was looking for an eclectic ear somewhere. And he said, well, how about Ray Stevens? And, and honestly, that was just the most light bulb idea. I went from his office down to a payphone on Broadway or 7th Avenue, whatever, and called Ray Stevens' office and asked if he was going to be there the next couple of days. And the woman said, yeah, he will. So the next morning I went, got on the plane and went down there and was lucky enough to get to see him. It was such a great choice because he is so smart. I mean, I would play my song 20 seconds maybe afterwards. He would give me his comment and it would be so helpful. Just that 20 seconds, no on and on and on, just, you know. And sometimes it would just be a shrug that it was sort of said, I can't help you there, I don't know, you know. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for me. But once in a blue moon, he would say, Lang, that is a smash. And when that happened, I thought, he's right, and anyone I play it for who doesn't agree is wrong. <laughs> so I would just keep playing it. I gradually got to anticipate what he was going to say, you know. I mean, I mean, this is an interesting, when we first moved there, I had a song that had the word escalator in it. So this is like 1972. He said, Lang, take my word for it. Most people have never been on an escalator. They have no idea what you're talking about. Say something else. So that was an example of, of someone with a more culturally eclectic palate, you know, or ear 
that helped me just use the simplest, most basic words that added either description or color or, or information, but didn't require any particular locale or whatever. They just, all you had to be was a human being. Rebidin's recorded by you in 71. It makes a, some regional progress. You use it as a demo, and I love the Billy Crash Craddock video that the outfit he's wearing in his... Uh, oh, yeah. I never even saw it. I uh, didn't know there's a video. Oh, no. It's, it's yeah. on YouTube. But he seemed like a very charismatic top of the industry at the time. And he was a lovely person. And I think he had been a drywall guy. And his manager, who is a brilliant guy named Dale Morris, who subsequently managed Alabama and now manages Kenny Chesney, you know, was the manager at the time. And Dale is a lifelong friend. I mean, we are like brother and brother still today. He's a little older than me, but we're kind of the same, the same era. It's the early 70s. I know that the lyrics itself have a certain risque feel at the time. I don't know yeah. if, you know, today people would say the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah. But did you have a lot of pushback on that? No, really, I didn't. I, the demo that I used, which really was a record, had been produced by Ray Stevens, and it is a fantastic record. I mean, Ray's a brilliant producer, and he did background parts and blah, blah. And pushback came where people said, that doesn't sound country to me. You know, I agree, because it, it really didn't. But Billy Crash Craddock was recording things that really not that country either. But when you added fiddles and steel guitar and his Southern accent and so, it, it becomes, you know, country. And so I never had anyone who, who said it was too sexy or too whatever, except my mother-in-law. <laughs> my mother-in-law said, that's dirty. And I thought, no, it really, it's just cuddly. It's really not dirty. You use the word sacriliac yeah. in the song as a rhyme, as I recall. Yeah. Put it on my back and my sacroiliac and a dab on my chinny chin chin. It's funny, in my record, I mispronounced it. I, instead of saying sacroiliac, I said sacroiliac, you know, but it stayed and it is fine. Is that a part of the body? I think it's the very bottom of your back. Yeah, yeah, sacroiliac, yeah. Couldn't believe when I come up with that rhyme, it's a miracle. But there was no controversy about the sexiness of the lyric. Not that I ever heard. I, you know, people would say it's cute or it's sexy or something like that. But I don't think anybody didn't play it. I may be mistaken. I don't know. But it went to number one on the country charts. Yeah. And so did you have a number one party? No. They didn't do them back then? <laughs> no. <laughs> my number one party was to go home and actually be able to pay for my hamburgers. <laughs> do you remember where you were the first time you heard it on the radio? Probably the first song I ever heard on the radio was when I was still in college. It was a song called Looking for Boys. I had taken that title into these guys who were these genius kids. They were only a year or two older than me. They had written and produced My Boyfriend's Back, the famous song. And I ended up going in there one day and just bringing them my songs. And I brought them my songs for a year or so every time there was a new one. But this one time I came in with the title Looking for Boys. And... They loved it. They all pitched in their thoughts on it, but they were tied up in litigation. So they went back to one of the high schools in Brooklyn where one of them had gone and found these three other girls and called them the pinups <laughs> and recorded it exactly as they would have with the angels. 
It got to number 108 in Billboard. That was called Bubbling Under at the time. They would start at like 100 and go to maybe 120. It wasn't actually on the big number chart. But I did hear that on the radio. And they were very fair. There were three of them and one of me. And they gave me half of the writer's credits to the song instead of dividing it into quarters. So I thought that was pretty remarkable. So that was your first royalty check? Oh, God. I mean, I don't even know if I got a royalty <laughs> check. I mean, maybe it's some five for, cents or something. For making the Billboard 108. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, once in a blue moon that appears on my BMI statement, but she like probably never earned a total of $40 or something, you know. So your cheeky taco store has burnt down and you write Rub It In. And do you remember your first royalty check from that song? Yeah, because that was from my record, and I think it was just like $600 or something like that. I mean, all the numbers are so different now because, I mean, you have to remember, you could buy a pretty good house for $25,000. So $600 was not peanuts, and you know, our rent was $215, so that's three months' rent, which sounds like, okay, great, we know you need another $600, which is true. But I was loading trucks and being a bartender and painting radiators and doing anything I could to stay alive. So that 600 bucks was a big deal when I got it. <laughs> With Rub It In, the Billy Crash Craddock one, I do remember that that was a good size check and that wiped out all the advances that Ray Stevens had given me for, he was paying me 200 bucks a week, which was a lot of money for someone to get as an advance at that time. Because there was, for one thing, no assurance that he would ever get that money back. But when I got my first check for Rub It In. I think Ray had been giving me money for, I don't know, a couple of years anyway. And it wiped out all that, which was just such a great feeling to see going into the plus signs, you know, into the green, as it were. And so you relocate from New York. You never finished college. Right. You'd gone to Denison and transferred to Columbia. Yeah. And was pretty close to graduating. Did you ever... Go back and get your degree. No, it's interesting. I have 15 credits to go. Actually, they're the same 15 credits that I earned at Denison, but did not transfer to Columbia because the basic courses like Western Civilization and so on had to all be taken at Columbia. You know, there came a point when I was so obsessed with songwriting. It was all I was thinking about. And it sounds ridiculous to leave a school like Columbia or any school with 15 credits till you graduate, but I had already wanted to quit for like a year and a half, you know? So I, I never regret it. I mean, my take at the time was that I was never going to do anything that that degree would be required for. And it turned out to be true, but I was just lucky. And probably in general, it's a good idea for people to complete stuff. But you have two little infant boys. Yeah. I believe the second one, if, if I understood it right, was being born while the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day the restaurant burned down, our son Tucker was born. Tucker's a record producer, too, and a really good one. So your wife is in labor while your Cheeky Taco restaurant is on fire. That's right. That was a hell of a day. I mean, it, it all those things help build up your ability to handle stress, I promise you. You have things like that happen and, you know... If I can survive this, I can survive almost anything. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's funny. You don't really think of that kind of thing until afterwards. You're dead, that on that particular day, I mean, so Linda's 
contractions had begun and at the time you could kind of predict by the length of one how long until the other and you know so she said the baby's not going to come for you know x hours so you just go out there and which was like a 40-minute ride. And Linda's very tough. I mean, she doesn't bat an eyelash. She's got guts to burn, always has. And so I went out there, and my employees were standing outside the restaurant, and the windows were all broken. And, uh, you know, it was just inside was all the tables were tipped over, and the insulation was hanging down like, like I said, like Spanish moss, you know, and it was wet and smelled like burn. I mean, it's just, just horrible, but, you know, I, did, I don't know. I just thought, okay, so let me find out if Linda's at the hospital, you know, and I, I turned my car around and stopped at a pay phone, couldn't reach her. My sister told me that she had gone to the hospital, driven herself. And, you know, the baby Tucker was born that day and I didn't tell anybody who was there, which was my parents and Linda's parents at the hospital because that was such a downer. And this event of Tucker being born was such an upper. I didn't, you know, and we all went out to dinner and <laughs> the next day, you know, I just sorted it all out. We we had sold our house because we had actually also sold the restaurants. But when the fire happened, the guy who was going to buy the restaurant did not want to buy the restaurant anymore. So we were suddenly without a house. I mean, the house had been sold. And the guy didn't want to buy the restaurant, but I had already rented an apartment in Nashville. So we we just went. And, you know, my wife when we made the decision to move to Nashville, has so much courage because most people would have said, well, you got to get a steady, regular job now. you got to quit fooling around and everything. But she didn't. She said, no, let's go to Nashville because Rub It In had this flurry of success while I was at Cheeky's. And so we didn't think we were totally dreaming, you know. And we came to Nashville and, I mean, I, I was a bartender and I did, you know, load trucks and paint radiators. And I was a teamster, which is a very hard thing to be. It's very hard to get a union card to be in the teamsters, but it's really valuable because your pay goes way up and, you know, you check in. I mean, if you check in at 8.30 and then you check out at 4.31 or something, you get one extra minute of, I mean, they pay you for every, you know, so it was really organized and I had great respect for it because I needed every nickel that it paid. And the way they operated at the time was if you weren't a regular, you know, where you came every day, let's say at, at midnight or whatever, you were called a casual. And that meant that they would call you when they needed you. And so in the middle of the day at Ray Stevens, I might get a call and said, can you be here at 4.30 or can you be here at midnight or whatever, and, but not knowing if that was going to happen. And a sidebar of information to that that I learned from the people who work there was you never tell them that you can't come because they'll stop calling you. So anytime they called, I went, including no matter what, if I was exhausted or whatever, I went to Roadway Express, which is the company that I was working for. So you're writing for Ray Stevens in the mid-70s, and there's a bunch of songs that we can talk about in there that broke the top 100, but it wasn't until 77 with Way Down that you had your next number one on the country chart. Yes. By Elvis Presley. Yep. Let's talk about that song. Yeah, well, that song was so interesting to me because I wrote it in a tiny office that Ray had given me, which didn't look 
like much to anybody except me, but it, it literally had been a broom closet. It was a four by four room. And I had never had any little private place that was just mine. I would write in an empty room in his offices or somewhere, but it nothing that was dedicated to just me and I could leave my things there or whatever. But one day I asked him if I could have this little broom closet for an office. And he said, sure, you want that that tiny? Yeah, I do. And then he built me a little shelf and I had a little recorder on it called Wollen Sack, which lots of people made lots of very successful demos on. It was a tiny little reel-to-reel tape player. And I went in there every single day, every single day, all day, and wrote songs. And I would just sing and play and stomp my feet. And I was literally 20 feet from Ray and about 10 feet from his secretary. And I just, at some point, I years later, I realized, how could they not have just said, stop, you're killing me. It's You're driving me nuts. You got to quit for at least an hour. They never did. And so it was quite close quarters. And I would just go in and just write a song, whether I felt like it or not. And I would collect song titles and write them on a napkin or piece of paper and stick them in my pocket. And periodically I would transcribe them into a notebook. When I was stuck for an idea, I would just flip through these notebooks. And I think Way Down may have come from something like that. I don't really remember the genesis of the title. But I remember writing the song and taking it into Ray and and Ray said, I really like that. He said, yeah, let's, let's make a demo of it. There's nothing going on today. Let's call the band and make the demo. Well, we made this, what I think of as a really wonderful, exciting demo. And, you know, he did the background part, which is way down. And his band played the rest. And I sang the lead part. And when it was finished, I just thought, well, you know, everyone in the world's going to want to record this. But nobody did. I played it for every single person who was even a vague contender in Nashville. Nobody even held it overnight. And then one day I was out pitching my songs, which is what I did when I wasn't writing. And I sat next to this very famous publisher named Bob Beckham. He was one of the one or two very top publishers in Nashville. He knew every single person there was and had been around forever, even though he wasn't very old. Everyone knew he had a direct line to Elvis and that Elvis's record producer named Felton Jarvis was extraordinarily famous at the time and legendary, but no one ever saw him. He was just this incredible ghost rumor superstar. They knew that Felton Jarvis came to Bob Beckham's office every few weeks and picked up songs that were contenders for Elvis. And Bob Beckham said, hey, Lang, you work your ass off. Do you have anything for Elvis? If you do, bring it to me at three o'clock or whatever. At the time, you had to have a disc cut. You couldn't bring a tape. Elvis didn't listen to tapes, only discs. He'd put them on a little cheap record player in the studio, and if he liked it, you know, he'd record it. And if he didn't, he'd sometimes use it as a Frisbee across the you know, room. So I went and got a disc cut, which I had to clear with Ray because it wasn't cheap. And I took it over to his office. And about a week later, Felton Jarvis, the producer, called Ray Stevens and said, Ray, Elvis is just going to go crazy for this song. He's going to love it. And I heard nothing for three or four months until I again on the street heard Elvis is looking for songs. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I'll take my song back to Bob Beckham. So got another disc cut, took it back. About 30 minutes later, 
Bob Beckham's secretary calls and says, Lang, I think Elvis has already recorded this song you just brought over. And I said, well, that's impossible. I, I would know. And she said, let me check. So a minute or two later, she calls and says, yeah, he recorded this in the jungle room, October, whatever date, 29, 30, something. It's done. That's impossible. I thought I jumped in my tragic little car with the, you know, no headliner, about five colors of paint on it, and a little Volkswagen. I drove home, told my wife that Elvis had recorded my song. Felton Jarvis called me up one day about a month later and said, I am over at Creative Workshop Recording Studio mixing your song. Mixing is when they put all the tracks together and make it sound like a record. He said, you want to come over and listen while we mix? And I said, absolutely. So I went over there and walked in the studio. And as I walk in the door, I hear, obviously, the introduction to my song. And I thought, God, this is unbelievable. And then I heard him start singing my song. This is just amazing. Of course, he wasn't there. I'm just hearing the recording. And I go in, and Felton says, you just sit here, and he turns down the lights, and he starts playing, he starts mixing the record. And I just leaned back on that couch, and I just thought of being in my mom's car when I was in seventh grade with my girlfriend the first time I heard Heartbreak Hotel. And a f switch had flipped in my heart and literally never went off. And I, now I'm 20 years later, in Nashville studio listening to Elvis sing my song. And I just thought, this is just impossible. But it happened. I really like the chorus in this song. It's it's different, the way, especially the way it winds itself up. I mean, I could feel it, feel it, feel it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. and way down where the music plays. Way down, yeah. Yeah. Way down, like a tidal wave, way down where the fires blaze. Yeah. And then the way it ends. Yeah. Way down, down, way, way on down, yeah. It's because it doesn't, like, end in a rhyme. Well, it's got three rhymes, and, you know, way down where, you know, I can't even remember the words. Where the music plays, like a tidal wave. Where the fires blaze, way down, yeah. So three rhymes in a row, and then way down. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny, the construction, how, how, how it happens. You just don't, just, you just kind of know if it doesn't feel right, but. How it gets there is something else again. I guess the closest thing in, in writing songs is to music is, is just, you know, music is a heightened form of speech. A song is just a heightened form of speech. So way down, you know, it, it, I, I realized, that, like, that, way down's a good example. I had three songs that I realized later were sort of forms of onomatopoeia where it sounds like what it is, you know, words sounds like what it is way down and rub it in rub, kind of rubs and then this other song called wiggle wiggle which kind of wiggle 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 it kind of wiggled you know and i realized that you know that was a, a good example of of lyrics matching melody and, and helping to contribute to the message you know but i it wasn't really intentional but i find the chorus is a big contrast to the verses and in, in other words elvis is uh pretty excited about a girl, yeah, and <laughs> you know, in the yeah. song, and yeah. then it's making him way down, which is kind of the opposite. I what what was in that? Well, the, the feeling is just way down deep inside of me is the drift of it. You know that it's not down in the dumps; it's way down inside me. Yeah, right, exactly. Where the music plays, yeah, like a tidal wave. The fires aren't really a cheeky fire. 
sexual fires. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and just to be clear, a <laughs> hundred magic fingers. A yeah, hundred magic fingers on a swing. You have you ever been on those things in motels where you put it in a quarter and it shakes like that? You know, I've seen it in movies. Oh yeah, and I, yeah. And, and I've, I they probably been in don't hotel. have them anymore. I, I know. Probably. I know. So Unless it's a real old cheapy, maybe they would have it where it wiggles still shimmies like that. It was like the, you know, now they have chair massagers. Yes, you know, exactly. <laughs> the that, Brookstone chair the, massager the is yeah. the modern version that's, of the of the, of the original Magic Fingers. Yep, yep. After a hard day of uh, of driving <laughs> truck a truck. A, truck, a yeah. truck, yeah. And so Elvis records this. Do you know that it's going to be the single that gets promoted to number one? Like no, when do you no, just... It's it, an incredibly odd thing happened. Moody Blue which is the name of the album, had been a big hit single and had been number one. And out of the blue, this song, I think it's Let Me Be There, the old Olivia Newton-John song, which I, I believe was also on the album. At any rate, out of the blue, this friend calls me and said, hey, Lang, I just got a box of this new Elvis record. It's called Let Me Be There. And I thought, Really? I went over there and there it was printed on the RCA label and everything. But something had happened. Somebody had worked some political magic and gotten these records printed that wasn't the RCA single at all, but it was on the RCA label. And this guy is just some incredibly clever person had these things printed and had it shipped to the radio stations to look like the single, but it wasn't. And RCA knew that, but it suddenly had this problem. Everybody thinks that this is a single, and it, and it wasn't. Anyway. Huh. So it's like a bootleg. Yes. Perfect. The original bootleg. Yeah. That's a collector's item. That really would be. That would be. I probably had one at one point, <laughs> but no. But anyway, I don't know how they killed it or why it died or how it died. So my record was supposed to be the next single, and I had heard that, so to speak, on the street. So this thing interrupted that. But they did put it out in June, and it did go to number one. But the craziest part of it was we were in Rhode Island in the summer, and I was playing tennis, and I got a call at the tennis court from a friend who was also a, another record promoter. He was just a friend. I hadn't hired him. A record promoter's job is to get your song played on the radio. But he was in touch with billboard magazine so he called up and he said lang i just got the advance numbers for next week's billboard which are available usually on tuesday or something and your song way down is number one next week in billboard and i thought oh my god that is the greatest thing going because even though something is doing well you just never know if it'll get you know, like i think it had been number two or close the previous week but you don't know so I thought, oh my God, it's just amazing. And literally two days later, I was on the same tennis court, another phone call, and it's from my lawyer in Nashville. And she said, Lang, are you near a TV? No. Well, Elvis is dead. And I just thought, well, this is just the most unbelievable occurrence in the world. I mean, not only is it incredibly sad, you know, so on, but I mean, in, in actual practical sense. I had sent this guy so many songs to an address that everyone had and rarely ever heard back from. But literally the last new song he ever recorded in his life is Way Down. And it happens to have been number one on the day that he died. That's just too crazy, you know. 
because I really did go back to that seventh grade ride to the movies with my little girlfriend in my mom's car when she was driving us. We were whatever, 14. And this incredible life change had occurred when I heard his singing Heartbreak Hotel. And then the idea that in any way our lives or careers or whatever would be lined up in any way. And then just the idea that he had learned the song by listening to me sing it was just so absolutely unbelievable. I never met him. I didn't know him. I didn't, you know. So anyway, the most famous singer who ever sang in the world recorded my song. That just seemed impossible. But it had happened. And it was a feeling that was so transcendent and so unbuyable. I mean, you know, if I had gone into a business and made tons of money or something, I couldn't possibly have bought this feeling that I had of this boyhood idol having recorded my song. I mean, I took his first album to my seventh grade music class. It had four pictures of him on the back. I don't know if you ever saw that album. It's four, like a quad thing of just this, you know, every kid in the school, you know, boys, girls, whatever. He is definitely the coolest guy who has ever lived. And we all just went ape shit for him, you know. You know, the fact now, even, and I, I wrote this in my book, uh, this morning with the lead sheet where it says Elvis Presley and then over to one side and Lang Martin Jr. And I thought, that's just impossible. I mean, you how does that happen, you know? But sometimes things do. So they didn't have a number one party. No, <laughs> no, nobody had number one parties. No. Back then. No. But in the aftermath of Elvis passing away, was there any focus on the song? Oh, God, maybe, Doug. I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, you know, we had these little kids and I mean, I didn't know who won the World Series. I didn't I didn't even know who had the number one pop records or I didn't know anything. I was just absorbed in trying to stay alive and pitching my songs and writing songs and I was obsessed with it. I mean, I I was wrote songs on the weekends at night when everybody was asleep and let alone all day and I never wanted to be back in a fish taco place or in on writing ads, which I had done before that on Madison Avenue. I mean, I had a good job for a wonderful company and people. I, I loved the guy who ran my ad agency, but it, it just was not for me. And I just, the idea of ever being back there again was just so abhorrent that I was, I was literally obsessed with, you know, just what can I do to ensure that I will never, ever be in that spot again. So... So Trisha Yearwood did I Want to Go Too Far. Yeah. I Want to Go Too Far was written with another totally brilliant songwriter by the name of Kent Robbins. He wrote a bunch of songs. One of the more notable was the Judd's record of Love is Alive, Love is Alive at the Breakfast Table, blah, blah, blah. Incredibly deep feeling. Graduate of Vanderbilt. Came from a small town in Kentucky where, you know, feelings and family and heart and soul kind of ruled and he and I just totally clicked we were just crazy about each other and I was on a trip literally zooming down the runway at a JFK going somewhere to France or I think and I just thought to myself I want to go too far I, meaning I just wanted to see everything do everything be everywhere and I wrote that title down. I thought, this is a fabulous song title. 
you know, is I want to go too far, I want to go too fast, I want to, it sounds like it's a sexual thing, but it was just the adventure of it. And I suggested it to Kent after we got back, and he loved the idea too. And it's just a great song, and Trisha made a wonderful record of it. And she's just an amazing singer. And today, you know, I, I, I heard something by her just, I don't know, a week or two ago, and I thought, God, man, I know she she's not having her moment like she was at that time, but I would knife my mother to have a, a song recorded by her again, and I'm just going to, you know, try to keep up with when she's recording and trip because I would take no royalty at all if she would record the song. She's that good, and it, there are plenty of people I feel that way about, um, plenty of people, but she's one of them. And so Richard Lee and I have this song. It's just total home run for a real singer like that. So tell me that that song. That's one of the questions I ask every songwriter is what's an on-the-shelf song that you would love to hear recorded and what voice would you want to record it? So you're you're beating me to the question punch here. You, you have this song in mind for Trisha. What is the name of the song? Tell me about it. Uh, it's called Two Cups of Coffee and it's just a love song and um, it's perfect for her. And if she ever comes up, I'm going to Get it to her. You know, you said earlier the the song "The Greatest Man I Never Knew" was too sad for people. I don't think there's such a thing as too sad in country, <laughs> but that's the first time I've heard that, that that it was too sad. All these people passed on it for too sad, and and this song you say is just a love song, and I don't think there is just a love song in country music. There's tell me about the love song. I, you know, I won't talk too much about it because I don't want to be spraying those lyrics out because they're they're just, uh, it's just, we nailed it. And um, so I'll just leave it that I think writing a love song that you just feel, in this case, 25 years later, 25 years, and I listen to it and I think, that's perfect. It's as timeless as air. And, you know, there'll be a person at somewhere along the line. Johnny Mathis, I sent it to him, some guy thought he might record him. It's that kind of a song. You know, those Johnny Mathis records, you know, most of my songs are boy-girl songs. They're the tension, the excitement between just people who love each other in the sexual sense. There's tension between men and women that's so exciting. Even just flirting, you know, with, you know, someone that you just, you don't even know it's just flirting, you know, it's exciting. It's wonderful. It's, it's a connection. And that's what I heard in, you know, all shook up and, uh, you ain't nothing but a hound, you know, there's just a magic in it. And all the, so many of the rock and roll songs were based on that, you know, come along, baby, whole lot of shake and go, you know, that's what it's about. And that's what grabbed me about. That's what made me want to write songs. And, so most of my songs, I mean, I had this little song that actually bought our house today. It's called Wiggle Wiggle that I mentioned before. The lyrics are, you know, I told you not to do that on the dance floor. You said you wouldn't do it in public anymore. Sunday through Friday, you kept it all in. Now it's Saturday night and you're at it again. Wiggle, wiggle. Honey, cut that out. You know, and it's just boy-girl tension. And that is what I was kind of eaten up with. It wasn't anything that I was pandering. I just, that's what occurred to me when I would go into the studio or to, to my little room to write songs. Those were the emotions that I felt because I've just always been totally crazy about girls and 
trust the magic that that happens between, you know, again, people who would have sexual attraction to each other. So I didn't write many love songs. I mean, I they could be interpreted as that. I'm certainly attracted to the person, but it's not a love song in in the sense that we probably mean, like the Johnny Mathis records. Well, your memoir is a love story. Yeah, yeah, it Of is. sorts. You want to talk about that and whether it's influenced any of your songs? And, and in particular, are there any songs about the love of your life? Well, there's one really early on called Linda Let's Me Live. And that's just, I think, such a key to any friendship, you know, whether it's just a friend or whatever, but definitely a being married to someone who just lets you be the way you are, you know, because they just decide somewhere before you even, you know, get married, if you ever do, that, that I just like this person and whatever they do is fine with me. And that obviously the other end of that is that the person's got to do things just because they want to, that makes you happy. But once you find someone who's just a good person, you know, I mean, she just let me live. I mean, I would go to the Waffle House at two o'clock in the morning. She'd never say, where are you going? I mean, she wouldn't even know I was gone, you know, unless she tapped or looking for me with her arm. Just total encouragement in every way, including moving to Nashville and, you know, 30 years old, you know, she was, you know, beautiful, smart as a whip and you know, never thought I was a loser, never thought, you better get your ass in gear. I don't want to be driving around these crud ball cars my whole life. I never said anything, you know. It was just plus signs, plus signs, plus positive, positive, positive. And while we get to that, one of the other songs you wanted to talk to was the Pointer Sisters song. Well, that's that song, Should I Do It, is exactly this, the tension between boys and girls. It says, um, I swore when he hurt me so I wouldn't see him anymore. But today he called my name. And I can feel that same old flame. Should I do it? Should I call? Should I fall? Should I do it after all? You know, uh, I I know when he holds me tight, I'm going to turn on like a light. I know when we're in his car. Uh, It's how I know when we're in his car. I will only go just so far. I can't remember. But it's all about, I mean, that song was written in minutes because it's just so simple and basic and I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. It says what I think we all go through, you know. You get mad at somebody and then you see them and you go, oh, I'm not mad at them anymore. I, you know, I just, what I, should I do it? Should I fall? Should I? Anyway, it's, it's again, it's the same thing. It's wiggle, wiggle. It's way down. It's rub it in. It's, it's just oh, the boy-girl thing. I'm saying boy-girl, but it could be just whatever the person's sexual feelings are. Yeah, that one is that feeling that you know you're in love. Yeah. Or you feel yeah, yeah, this yeah. could be love. Yeah, yeah. And well, you're just crazy about somebody. You're helpless, you know? That, that you know. When you think about them uh, all the time. Yeah, the and, bridge of that song is, oh, I'm so lonely and, and he's so fine. Uh, maybe I should swallow my pride just one, one more time, you know? Should I do it? Should I fall? You know, that's us. That's human beings to me. So you wrote that song alone, and how did it get to the point? Of, well, Tanya Tucker recorded it yeah, first she, she did, in 81, yeah. and then yeah. in December of that year, the Pointer Sisters released it, and it went to number 13 in the charts. Yeah, it went to number one on a, a bunch of charts, yeah. but in Billboard, it went to 13. Yeah, yeah, in Billboard, U.S. overall. How did it get to them, And did, I mean, after Tanya had recorded it? This guy that I mentioned originally named Erwin Schuster, who I had first played my very first demo for named Swagger, had become, as I said, the most famous pop publisher in the world. Yes, certainly in America. And 
when I had been with Ray Stevens sending my songs to other cities and getting absolutely nowhere, it was really frustrating because I loved the Pointer Sisters, just for example. I was sending them songs, never hearing a word, couldn't get them on the phone, could, could nothing could happen. So I thought, well, Irwin can get to all these people. Maybe we could work out a deal together. So we did. We made a, a joint venture, and right away he got two Pointer Sisters and got the theme to a kid's dance movie. The song was called Believe in the Beat. It wasn't like a hit single type thing, but it was kind of the theme to this this movie called Electric Boogaloo, Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo. And then Barry Manilow, which was not a single here, but was a single in a bunch of other countries. In the UK. And, yeah, yeah. I want to do it with you. Yeah, I want to do it with you. Again, another, you know, boy-girl thing. So he was incredibly exciting that access that he had. But he he jumped off his balcony of his house after three, I guess we'd been together three years or so, three or four maybe. I don't know what happened, but he was just the kindest, sweetest, most gentle man, and something happened in his in his life or in his brain or whatever, and, and he died one day. It was just crushing. It, it creamed me for a long, long, long time. I, I really was just wiped out by that that I loved him so much and he and I were such a team I called him literally every single morning of my life to just go over who was recording and if he'd had a chance to listen to a new song or whatever the business of the moment was and suddenly not having that was was just incredibly heartbreaking I mean I just cried my eyes out I mean the girl told me on the phone that he had died and it was just I just I just fell down I mean it's just you know, things like that. But He was a close friend, and you didn't know he was suffering from depression? Well, he lived in New York, so I didn't see him every day. We primarily talked about songs. and You know, when I would have a spell that I didn't think I was writing very well or didn't have any new ideas that I was very excited about, he, you know, he would assure me that that was a normal thing. And, you know, feel, feeling and feel was so important to him. And, and I remember the time I thought, well... I need to work on that word. No, just leave it. It's perfect. It feels, it doesn't matter. And it evolved that I realized at some point, maybe early, maybe later, I don't really know, that it's how a song makes you feel, that's the message. And I, I began to search for songs that were examples of that, that were where the feeling you got was opposite to the, <laughs> to the lyrics. And one of the best examples was um, Oh Lonesome Me. Everybody's going out and having fun. Look at me, I'm staying home and having none. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, lonesome me. Well, that's one of the happiest songs I've ever heard. It just everybody's going out and having fun. You know, it's just so happy. And so this thing of how does a song make you feel, you know, let alone does it make you feel, that's the message. That was reinforced by Erwin because I'd, I'd send him songs and, and he just said, I just love this. I'm just, I'm just playing it over and over. And, you know, and it, and he didn't usually say, you know, I love the, the message. Or he would just say, I love the way it feels. I love the way it, I feel when I listen to this. And I thought, that's what we all want. And how many times I've, there are songs from growing up, you know, um, this was later than growing up, but, you know, like a song like 99 Tears. I don't know if you know this. So 
I have no idea what that song's about, except 99 Tears. I have no idea what the verse is. I don't know anything about it. I think it's one chord the whole time. That, 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 <laughs> you know, that's very The music possible, doesn't change that's much. That's very possible. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think that, that rings a bell. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And so this thing of how does it make you feel? And so I... Too many teardrops for one heart yeah, to be that's crying. Good. Oh, good for you. Jesus, I can't begin to do that. Anyway, it, this thing of, of how does a song make you feel, that is the message. And if you can do things that make people feel deeply, whether it's happy or sad. I remember a very famous producer, Chips Moman. I would bring him my songs, and I'm, I'm not sure he ever recorded any. Maybe he did. But he said, Lang, you got to write some more sad songs. There's a lot more sad people in the world than are happy, and your songs are happy. You need to up your quality quantity of sad songs. I said, well, you know, um, that's not very good at that, you know. So we'd love to invite you to Park City to come to the Songwriters Festival, if you would, or play a Mountain Town music event. If you're, or, Are you still playing at all? No, I, I never played know. out. I played out yeah. twice in my life that I can think of, and I'm just not cut out for it. No, I get that. Not everybody is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting with my book. I've given these talks, and I've talked in, in some bookstores and at book clubs and in, in, at events about my book, and, and I'd love it. I, it's so odd because I didn't like playing my songs out. I was never interested in doing that. But I love talking about this book because it's about these interesting people and the, the interesting things that happen along the way, which to me... It's this human side of life that is just the most fascinating to me. I didn't realize it. I had no idea when I wrote this book that I would ever want to talk about it. But what I found is that the first day that I did talk about it, which was at Parnassus in end of May, I love this. I love these people, you know? These people just taught me so much, and they're colorful. And these events— you know, one of which is incredibly scary. It's incredibly scary, but it's interesting. It makes you. And so I have really been surprised, first of all, at how much I loved working on the book. It was unbelievably hard, incredibly hard, but how much I loved it. I never dreaded going to it ever once. And I had always read that the writers dread the page, the blank page. I, I, for some reason, I didn't. I loved it. And then the idea that the finished product, I hold it and I think there's no damn thing I would change and not the graphics, not the words, not the way the pages lay out, nothing. And it's just so exciting to hold it. And I, it's just such a pleasure to talk about it because if someone asked like you did about Benny Goodman or the advertising job or working for the, my very first job interview was when I was eight, when I interviewed with this guy who was running a restaurant I love this guy. He didn't hire me then, but he hired me four years later and became a a source of money for my whole teenage years growing up because I'd wash his cars. But he was a crazy person. He was always saying, God damn it, get your ass out of here. You know, he fired me every he fired 15 you over seconds. The, you know? repeatedly. And then the next morning he'd call him and say, where the hell are you? God damn it, get your ass in here. You know, it was just like, okay, well, you know, I love this guy, you know, and I knew he loved me even though he was always, you know. And so they're interesting people and I love you know, telling about them. Yeah. Learning how to work with bipolar managers is a very, <laughs> very uh, I guess he was, strong yeah. skill set yeah. to learn early in life yeah. at the age yeah. of 12. And to not take it personally. He, he doesn't mean anything. He doesn't hate my guts. It's not, I didn't do anything to him. 
bipolar <laughs> managers are everywhere in life. God, oh. well, I'm Perhaps. sure I've been lucky not to have one yeah, except for him. Except I guess. for him. <laughs> well, this has been fabulous. I got to thank you so much. I am so grateful that you and other songwriters are willing to sit down with me and share the real window of their soul. Oh, thank you, Doug. And if you come back to Nashville, call me and we'll meet up, coffee or something else. 